I'm going to give you just a brief recap because I know uh, just with Memorial Day and graduation in May and all of the things that come along with that, we've had people in and out. So um, I'm going to give you a couple of verses. And um, here in Psalms uh, chapter 18, verse 32, he writes and he says, God arms me with strength. How many of you realize that he's talking about us? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. God arms you with strength. So I have good news this morning. If you're weary, you've been armed with strength. Now, you may have to tap into it, but it's in you. He goes on, he says, he makes my way perfect. Verse 34 is this verse that really stuck out to me. And he says, he trains my hands for battle. He strengthens my my arm to draw a bow or to draw a bronze bow. He says, you have given me your shield of victory and your right hand supports me and your help has made me great. Your help has made me great. And so even when we're talking and uh, in, in what we're kind of looking at, because we are in a fight, we are in a war. It's about the kingdom of light, which is the kingdom of God, versus the kingdom of darkness, which is the devil and demonic powers and the rulers of this present world. We are in a fight. And, you know, in a couple of weeks ago when we started this, I, I just made the statement is that the devil doesn't take days off. And yet many times as believers, we let our guard down and we wonder why the enemy gets advantage of us. And the reason is because we let our guard down. And yet the Bible gives us very specific, very clear uh, instructions on how to win this battle. You know, one of the first things you've got to do when you're in a fight is to realize you're in a fight. The second thing you need to do is figure out, who am I fighting? Number three, where are they coming from? What's their techniques? I mean, you know, those types of... It's important to know these things. And, uh, you know, and so we've been looking at some of these things and uh, talking about it in Psalms uh, 144, verse 1. This was another verse that really stood out to me. He says, Praise the Lord who is my rock. That's my foundation. Even when I'm talking about, you know, fighting the... You know, and, and in a sense, going to war against the enemy... I'm not really the one going to war. Jesus already went to war for me. But He is my rock. He's the foundation that I say. He's the stability of my life. But, I like this. He says, He trains my hands for war and gives my fingers skill for battle. He trains my hands for war and my, my, hand, my fingers are even skilled for the battle. In other words, this is what I was is that God has already equipped you with everything you need to beat up the devil. You've already got it. But you've got to apply it and walk in it and be aware of it. What good is a weapon if you don't even know what it means? Or how to use it? You know, there will come a day that I will teach my son how to shoot a gun. Right now, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because he can't understand and I'm definitely not going to let him play with one. Why? Because he's not ready. His, his hands are not skilled in that way. He is not ready to fire a gun. Give him a shotgun, what's it going to do? It's going to blow him backwards on his rear end. Why? Because he's like this tall. You know, I mean, it's just not going to happen. It's not wise. But there will come a day where he will be. And I will teach him proper things and how to carry it and don't stick it in the mud and, you know, things of that nature. But here the Bible says is that God has trained our hands. Now, I'm not talking in, in physical terms here. And I think many times when, when um, you know, we talk about these, this type of a subject, many times people take it like that we as Christians are to be on the offensive. Like that we're, you know, we're going to storm the gates of hell. 
Well, we'll look at Ephesians in just a few moments, but every piece of the weaponry that's listed except for one is defensive. So that tells me that I'm not trying to take the fight necessarily to the devil, but when he comes, I will punch. You know, there's a term in fighting, and some of you know this, I like fighting, I enjoy watching fighting. I love to watch a really good counter puncher. What that means is somebody who sits back and waits for the prime opportunity. They're not the strongest. They may not even be the fastest. But one of the things is they are the most accurate. And they'll sit there and dodge and weave and, you know, I mean, all these. Like, I'll give you an example of this. And most people don't think of this person like this. But most of you, I think, will know who this is. Mike Tyson, considered one of the greatest knockout boxers of all time. Everybody thinks he was just like a rage in a cage. But if you actually go and watch, he would wait for the right moment. And he would wait till somebody punched and he would just slide and punch. That's a counterpuncher. And I've seen some of the, like, what I would consider the most devastating knockouts aren't from the guy who's just coming in throwing haymakers. Just coming in just, you know, like windmilling. You know what I'm talking about? Just throwing. Usually that guy gets knocked out. Why? Because they're just trying to brawl. But somebody who is smarter... We'll just step back and we'll move and we'll move and we'll move and then boom. And just a quick punch can end a fight in a moment. They're a counter puncher. See, I believe as Christians, from what I've studied and from what I can tell, that's a pretty good picture for us as believers. I don't need to go out and find the devil. He will come and find me. But when he comes, I need to be prepared. And when he throws a punch... Get out the way and throw a counterpunch. That's the way that we are to respond as believers. And the good news is, is that we are prepared for this. But we have to have understanding about this. And so turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. This is really the kind of the focal point of the, uh, of the scriptures that we've been looking at. And where uh, really the, the whole focus of this entire series is based out of. But he says here in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. He says, a final word. He says, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. So first and foremost, and I've said this almost every week, this power is not of us. The ability is not of us. It's not just in and of ourselves to try to beat the devil up. If you think you can, you're in trouble. Go read the book of Acts, Seven Sons of Sceva. Go find out how they got treated and you'll find out. The power to overcome the enemy is not in and of ourselves. He says, be strong in the Lord. Think about, you know, in the first week I shared about David and Goliath. David didn't walk onto that battlefield and say, Goliath, in the name of David, I'm going to take your head off. He says, no, in in the name of the God that I serve, the God of Israel today will overcome you. But David still had a part to play. But God was the one who had conquered Goliath. David just got to finish it off. You know, and so here he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He says, put on all of God's armor. So not just pick and choose the ones that are convenient or the ones that fit into your life. He says, pick up your entire armor. <laughs> he says, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Now, uh, the New King James Version uses this word wiles, all the wiles of the devil. Now, I don't know about you. Does anybody in here know what that word wiles actually means? And he just, you do. Really, what does it mean? See, you didn't know your... 
tricks. Okay. Yeah, so this is interesting. In the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was written in, the word is actually methodos. And this is what it actually means is with a road, which seems kind of odd. But let me say it like this, is that it says do not be ignorant. Don't, you know, it says that we should be able to stand against all the tricks, the, the, the strategies of the devil. But the word is actually methodos, which means this. You need to know which direction the enemy is coming from. What good is it to get into a fight and you don't know which direction they're coming from? It's important. I mean, even as a nation, if we went to war, are we fighting this battle at sea? Are we going to fight this battle on land? Are we going to fight this battle in the air? Where are we fighting? That's the first rule of the fight. Like, we got to know where. What's the terrain like? Is this desert? Is this mountainous? Is this, I mean, what's the deal? What, and, and here it gives us the idea is that we need to know that the enemy has a strategy. He is deceptive. And we've got to be aware of how he's coming at us because he primarily comes at us in one way. In one major area of our life. And it's in the area of our thoughts. It's in the area of our mind. It's, it's in the area of what happens between these two ears. And he knows that, and that's his battleground. And so if we know that, then that tells us, hey, this is where we, we've got to defend. This is the fort. This is our, our stronghold that we've got to, to protect. Why? Because that's the place he's going to attack. The word wiles means tactics, tricks, schemes, strategies, or deceits. The enemy is very deceptive. He doesn't take something that's wrong and just bring it to us and say, hey, this is right. He takes something that's right and twists it just enough where it's no longer true. And he convinces us that that is truth. I mean, we looked at that in in the first week where he did that with with Adam and Eve in the garden. He twisted what God had said just enough that created question. And ultimately, it cost them really their life. It it cost them their experience with with really uh, God. And so, um, you know, we've also looked over the last couple weeks of this verse, and it's very similar and we'll come back to Ephesians here in just a second. In Ephesians, or I'm sorry, in Second Corinthians chapter two, verse eleven, Paul is writing, and he says, "So that Satan will not outsmart us." He says, "For we are familiar with his evil schemes." In other words, he says, "Be aware. Don't let the devil outsmart you." Well, how do you not let somebody outsmart you? You have to be smarter than them, right? I mean, isn't that the way that works? Look, we're not ignorant of what Satan is doing, what he's scheming, what he's trying to to pull. Don't let him pull the wool over your eyes. Pay attention and outsmart him. So one of the main things that, um, you know, if the devil's coming at us from a specific direction and he has a certain thing in mind, this is what it is. It's to get into our thought life and to fill our thoughts with lying emotions, false perceptions, and confusion. The devil won't come at us and just say, you don't deserve salvation. What he will do is come at you and say, you know what you did this week? You remember this moment? You're a bad parent. You're a bad spouse. You're, you, it's just little lies, false perceptions. Did God really say that you could be free? Did God really say that you could be blessed? Did God really say that he would heal you? Well, maybe, you know, well, I know God said he would heal you, but he didn't mean you. He didn't mean it because you deserve this. 
You put yourself in this situation. That's the way the enemy comes and they come like thoughts. And we don't even recognize that those thoughts are the work of the enemy. We think those are our thoughts. Never even real, And he slips in real subtly and drops it and then just backs off. And leaves it there to sit for what? For us to now meditate on that. Why? Because the more we meditate on that lie, the more we believe it. You know, there's a famous old quote that says, If you say a lie loud enough and long enough, eventually it will be believed as fact. Now, I could give you lots of examples culturally of this, but I won't. But there's lots. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Eventually, if we said that red was black, loud enough and long enough, everybody would stop saying that red is red. They would say, black is red. And we would say, no, it's not. But eventually, that would become true. For everybody else, why? Because that's all they know. And the enemy loves to do that. Where he comes in and just drops a little thought and and just like, I'm just going to leave this here. Because that's all he has to do. Because he knows that we will sit there because we're human beings. He knows human nature. We will meditate on that. We will think about that. We'll let that thought. And eventually, we'll buy into it. And the enemy loves to work in that way in our life. That's why the Bible here says that we have to take every thought captive. Take everything that doesn't agree with the Word of God. I mean, the thought will come, who, who do you think you are? You can't do that. Why would God want to use you? Oh, don't go say that to that person. What are they going to think? Well, I wasn't sure if that was the Lord or that's the devil. Was it going to be a blessing to them? Oh, probably, it probably was not the devil then. It's probably he was not the one who gave you that thought or that unction to go and to speak life into somebody. And so this is the battleground that we fight. And so here in Ephesians, though, let's jump back over there. He gives us some specifics here. He goes, so in verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you'll be able to stand against all the strategies or the tricks of the devil. Verse 12, it gives us some important information. It says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, mighty powers in the dark uh, world, and evil spirits in the heavenly places. There's four different, I'll, I'll use this word, four different degrees of satanic power that are out to try to influence us. You know, the devil really can't do a whole lot directly, but what he can do is influence. That's his greatest weapon. The power of influence is what he uses many times in our life. And so it gives us some understanding that, hey, there are different, um, you know, degrees, if you will, that the enemy is trying to work against us. But it says in verse 13, it says, Therefore, put on every piece of armor. So let me say it this way. Because you have an enemy, get dressed for a fight. Get ready. Be equipped. Put on every piece of God's armor. Why? So that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. He says, then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Which is what it tells me. If you put your armor on, you will stand up against the enemy. You will not fall. You won't. 
if you will do what Paul is giving us and Scripture is instructing us here to do, doesn't matter what the enemy does, he cannot cause you to fall. Because it says, after the battle, you will still be standing. Verse 14, it says, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the, and the body armor of God's righteousness. Of God's righteousness. Now, let me read you this out of um, the message translation. Verse 12 and 13. He says, this is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps. A life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all of his fallen angels. He says, be prepared. You're, uh, he says, you're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help that you can get. Every weapon that God has issued. So that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Take every weapon that God has issued you. You know, when we have military, they get assigned weaponry. And and that's theirs to use. They're responsible for those things. I believe many times we pray prayers asking God to do stuff for us when He's already given us the equipment to take care of what we need in in areas of our life. And we wonder, why didn't God work? Why didn't God work? Why didn't God work? Because God will not do for us what He has already given us the ability to do in Christ. He's not going to do it for us. And so it's important that we understand that hey, we are in a fight. Now here, you know, last week we looked at the belt of truth, and I'm not going to go into that, but ultimately, that's the basis of truth of God's Word in our life. It's the foundation. It's really um, the thing that everything else is built upon. But he says here, and he talks about um, the breastplate of righteousness. And this morning, that's really what I want to focus on, because, you know, it really, the way that that this is written, it really builds foundationally, and everything kind of goes from... The inside out, which is the way God always works anyways. God always works in our heart first before you ever see anything on the external. But I want to share some stuff with you this morning about the breastplate of righteousness. You know, I mean, there is absolutely nothing offensive about, in other words, you're not going to use the breastplate. It's all about protection. I mean, you're not going to run up and smash somebody with your breastplate. Like, that's just not going to happen. You wear it. It's actually two-sided. There was a front piece and a back piece. Now, if you've seen any movies of, like, Roman soldiers, they were, you know, today they look like, you know, just chiseled out forms of, you know, just like the most masculine, buff-looking man ever. They actually didn't look like that back then. They were actually layered more like a, um, oh, like an alligator skin where their scales are stacked on top of each other. And they covered. It covered from the neck all the way to just right at the belly button. But it protected the most important parts Of the body. The most vital organs. Because why? It protects the heart, the lungs, the intestines. I mean, your kidneys. Like, the kinds of things that, hey, if they were to get stabbed, you're you're going to probably die. I mean, the breastplate weighed approximately 40 pounds. And can you imagine walking around with a 40-pound weight on your chest all the time? And yet... You know, and I thought this was really interesting. One of the things that they would do is they would actually... Like, this is something just interesting. They would polish their breastplates so that they were extremely shiny. You know when you've been driving the car sometimes and the sun hits somebody else's windshield just right and it's almost blinding to you and you're like, oh gosh. They would shine their breastplate 
so that if they just got sunlight on it, it would act as an offensive weapon against their enemies. So it would almost, they, you know, get their focus off. And they would use it in that way, but when every other, when their sword would fail, when their shield would fail, and so or even if they were in the midst of a fight and somebody's swinging it and it gets through, they still had a last line of defense, which was that breastplate that protected their heart, protected those most vital organs. And they wore this all of the time. I love this here in Proverbs chapter 11, verse um, 4. I'm going to read this out of the New King James Version. It says that riches or money do not profit on the day of wrath, but righteousness will deliver from death. In other words, what he's saying is, the day you stand before God, it don't matter how much money you got. What's going to matter is were you righteous or not. That's what's going to matter. And in here where Paul calls and he says, this is the breastplate of righteousness. He's telling us that we have to have an understanding of who we are and more importantly, who we've been made to be. Why? Because the Bible says that if, if any be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. But what happens in that moment is now we have been taken in, and, and placed into right standing with God. That's what righteousness is. It means that there's, no, there's, no, um, there's nothing between me and God. There's nothing standing in my way of my relationship with the Lord. He has made me right. He, he, he looks at me not by my sin, not by the things that I fall, but He looks at me and says, you are righteous because you've received what I have for you. See, the enemy loves to come and to slander, to accuse and many people fall for his trick simply because they don't understand righteousness. Or if they do, it may be even skewed a bit. And so this morning, what I want to do is to take a few moments and to talk about the breastplate of righteousness because it is vitally important for you if you're going to successfully defend your life and your family against the work of the devil. Because here's the thing about righteousness, and I'm going to give you just a, a little synopsis real quick, and then we're going to kind of dig in a little bit. Righteousness has nothing to do with what you do or don't do. The fact that you're at church this morning right now does not make you righteous. What makes you righteous was the blood that was shed 2,000 years ago by Christ. And that blood is what declares us as righteous today. So I'm not trying to become righteous because I can't. It doesn't matter how good I could be on my best day, on your best day, we're not righteous in and of ourselves. That's why this is so important. And that righteousness is actually a gift. That's the way the Bible says it. It's a gift. Do you earn a gift? Or is a gift given? A gift is given. Now I want to show you a couple of things. I really want to compare and contrast two things about uh, righteousness, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to read a, a parable that Jesus taught. Because one of the things that the enemy will do, and, and this parable really uh, portrays this so well, is that the enemy necess doesn't necessarily come at us, and I mean, and he will 
so there's really, I guess you could say there's two sides. He'll come and either try to get us to believe that we're not who God says we are, or he will try to get us to rely on ourselves. And we're going to look at two different men here. Starting in verse 9, it says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. So Jesus is talking to a bunch of self-righteous people. That's what it says. And it says they had great confidence. Great confidence. That, hey, I'm righteous, I'm good. Before the Lord, I'm good. Me and God are good. We have a lot of people in our culture that this would be true of. Oh, I'm saved. When was the last time you and Jesus had a conversation? Oh, I got saved when I was a kid. I went to church when I was little. I did this, I did that. Yeah, but what about knowing him? Like, when was the last time you had a, you know, I mean, I always say it this way, and you know, or at least I, I look at it this way. When was the last time the Holy Spirit said to stop something? When was the last time you got convicted about something? Because this is what I know. When I get around the Holy Spirit, He starts convicting me. Not because He says anything, but just because He's good and I'm not. And I'm like, I got some room to grow. So conviction comes just by being around God. Not because He's angry, not because He's upset. Why? Because His standard is so much higher than mine. But here's the thing. His standard motivates me to want to rise. It doesn't say, man, I could never get there. And here, Jesus is telling a story to a bunch of self-righteous people. In other words, they say, I'm good. God, yeah, I'm good with God. In verse 10, he says, two men went to the temple to pray. It says, one was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. Now, you've got to remember who he's talking to. The Pharisees, which is who he was referring, who he's talking to, they were highly strict. They, they followed the letter of the law to the nth degree. When it came to the Old Testament, they were the strictest of all the strict Christians. You know, these would be people that, you know, didn't have nice stuff. You know, they didn't, um, oh, what's the, they had an answer for every Bible trivia question. They didn't have a TV. They didn't listen to the radio. They'd never been on the internet. We just love Jesus and leave us alone. That was the Pharisees. That would be like a modern day. Like, but that's what makes us holy. We're holy because we don't watch TV. We're holy because I don't listen to that. I'm holy because I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't do that. And I would never go there and I would never hang out with these people and I would never do this. And and God loves me and I love him and that's what makes me righteous. It's because of all what I don't do. Now he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, one day a Pharisee goes to pray, but there was also a despised tax collector. And I can guarantee you when Jesus said it, everyone listening goes, yep, those tax collectors, they are despised. (laughs) Amen. Preach that, preacher. That right there is truth. Despised. They look down upon them greatly. Now I want you to hear how many times I'm about to say the word I. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank God that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, and adulterers. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. And I give a tenth of all of my income. According to the law, you were to fast one day a year. And this guy says, one day a year, I do it two days a week. Lord, I thank you that I'm not wretched and nasty and disgusting like this guy. And that really was their attitude. I mean, they, they looked at him as less than a, an animal, less than a dog. Like somehow of great superiority. 
I, 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 I am not like I fast twice a week. I give my money. It's a self-righteousness. I have done, I have done, I have done. I didn't do that, and I didn't do that, and I definitely don't hang out where he hangs out. And I don't know his friends, because that's not godly. So there's this self-righteousness just oozing out of this guy. God, I thank you that I come standing to pray to you based off of what I have done. And because what I have done, now you're going to listen to me. That's really the heart of what this guy would be saying. It has nothing to do with God. See, this is what is called works righteousness. My experience with God is based off of what I do. Not off of what he has done. Works, now, let me say this, is that works righteousness is unrighteousness. Why? Because righteousness is a gift. You can't earn it. I'll show you this here in a few minutes. But here's the other thing about works righteousness is that it's me-centered and not Christ-centered. It's not God-centered. It's not focused on what He has done for me. It's what I have done for God. One of the dangerous things about this is that ultimately works righteousness is rooted in pride. Now, people always quote the scripture from Proverbs that says, you know, pride comes before a fall. That's not actually what the scriptures say. It says haughtiness comes before a fall and pride before destruction. Self-righteousness leads to destruction. Not like a fall. I mean, we, you know, a fall is kind of like the tame, nicer version Self-righteousness ultimately leads to destruction. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says this, and I'll just paraphrase this. It says that our righteousness on our best day, if we did everything perfect, is like a filthy rag before God. Why? Because it's still not anything in comparison to His righteousness. See, when we have the mentality of works righteousness, our performance establishes our worth or our value. I've had a good week. God loves me. I've had a good week. I haven't, you know, I haven't said anything that I shouldn't say and I hadn't gotten mad at nobody and I've been a sweet person this week, so I can pray. That's what works righteousness will tell you. I've had a good week, so I can go to church. I've had a good week, so I can pray. I've had a good week, so now I can go and worship God freely. Because me and God are right. Because my value is based off of what I do. That's works righteousness. I didn't miss a devotional day all day, and I even got two in one day. <laughs> Praise God. I've got, you know, I got one in my back pocket in case I miss one day. I can say, well, Lord, you know, I got those two that one day. With works righteousness, our performance establishes our worth. Not, not based off of that God made me and that God saved me and God redeemed me. That God has called me righteous. In this system, God is nothing more than a scorekeeper. That's what we reduce Him to. Get a gold star for today. You get no star today. Remember that? Like in elementary school, they had the big chart. So you knew who I never got stars. Because I didn't know how to keep my mouth shut. And I was more interested in having fun than I was in getting an education. So I never got stars. I never got lollipops. I'm still a little bitter about it. You can pray for me. But 
God is not a scorekeeper. He is not keeping track of... I mean, I'm not going to stand before God and He say, David, you had 12,322 good days and you had 25,400 and whatever. I don't even know how many years that would be. I might be a thousand years old for all I know now. But He's not going to tell me how many good days and bad days, how many pleasing days and upsetting days. He's not going to look at me and say, you had a good run right there, but I don't know what happened. He's not keeping track of our lives like that. Although, works righteousness is completely motivated from that standpoint. God is keeping score. Sometimes I think, as parents, you know, that we do that, I mean, to what? To try to control our kids. To control people. Oh, you better not do that. The Lord's watching. He's watching you too. (laughs) You might need to remember that. No, righteousness is a gift. Works righteousness is a paycheck that's earned. I mean, when I get a paycheck from doing anything, I'm not like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I'm like, give me my check, I earned that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I did the work, I want to be paid. I'll be gracious, but I'm not like, oh my goodness. You're so kind. No, we had an agreement. I was going to do X and you were going to pay X and I did X. Now I want my X. Right. Right. I mean, that's what we said. Righteousness is not a paycheck. Righteousness is a gift. It's a gift from God that I could never earn, that you could never earn, that I can never deserve. But it's a gift nonetheless. God says here, it's my gift to you. I'm giving this to you. I love this definition of righteousness. I'll tell you what. Let's go back to Luke chapter 18, verse 13. So we see the Pharisee pray. So then we have this despised tax collector. And it says the tax collector stood. Now I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't call him a despised tax collector. Here. He just says who he is. He says that the tax collector stood at a distance and dare not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. He said instead he beat his chest in sorrow saying, Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. He says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, Jesus gives us an example. He compares and contrasts two different people. Whose prayer was heard that day? It wasn't the Pharisees. It was the tax collector. Why? Because he was honest before the Lord. See, in works righteousness, I can't go to the Lord when I don't measure up. Because why? I don't measure up. But in true righteousness, on my worst day, if nothing else, I can go to God and ask for mercy. I can say, God, I know, I recognize, I don't deserve this at all, but I'm going to ask you to forgive me. Today was a bad day. I said some stuff I shouldn't have said. I probably thought a lot of things I shouldn't have thought. I know that the enemy got the upper hand, but I'm not going to let him drive a wedge between me and you, so I'm just going to own it right now. Today was a terrible day for me. But I thank you that you call me righteous. I don't feel righteous, but you call me righteous. You call me the apple of your eye. I don't understand it, but I don't have to. 
I believe your word that you've called me righteous, that, that you say that I am blameless before you. And I don't know how that works, but I just want to say thank you. And I'm going to ask you for your mercy in my life because I recognize my need for you. That's what the difference between the Pharisee and this tax collector. The Pharisee couldn't even recognize that he actually needed God. The tax collector knew it. I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed. Have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. And, and we all hopefully have had that moment where we come to the realization that apart from God, I'm in a lot of trouble. And I am a sinner. Now that we have been saved, though, the Bible no longer calls us a sinner. We are now called righteous. I no longer identify as a sinner. Do I, have, do I sin occasionally in my life? Am I breathing? I mean, you might not want to believe it. You may want to think your pastor's perfect. You're never going to find a church that that's going to be true of. So I'm not going to play the game or sign up for that. I have struggles just like everybody else. But what I do know is who God has called me to be. He calls me righteous. He calls you righteous. I used to be on the fast track of works righteousness. And I was very proud of my work. And I thought I was better than a lot of other people. Why? Because I didn't do what they did. And I didn't act like this. And I didn't do these things. And, and the truth is I was just prideful. Which was actually worse than anything they were doing. So, I mean, if anybody was in more trouble, it was me than them. They were drowning and knew it. I didn't know it. I was drowning. I love this definition that I found about righteousness. It's not really a definition. It's more just the way somebody said it. But righteousness is this. When I fall short, the Lord makes up the difference by His mercy. When I fall short, the Lord makes it up. He'll come in behind me and help me. See, that's when the enemy comes and we put on the breastplate of righteousness and he wants to make accusations. At the end of the day, you go lay down in bed and all of a sudden, every stupid thing you've done all day just starts rolling through your mind. Condemnation begins to just mount. That's when you've got to say, you know what, devil? You're right. Today was a bad day. Let me pray about that. Lord, I just thank you. Today was terrible. You already know, but I'm just going to own it. But I'm still righteous. I'm not trying to become righteous. I am righteous. God makes up the difference when I fall short. Romans 5.17 says, For the sin of this one man, being Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater, even greater than what? Even greater than Adam's sin is God's wonderful grace and His gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Now, see, here's the thing, and kind of really what, what I want you to catch this morning is this, is that you can be righteous. And many of you have an understanding of who you've been created to be in Christ. That, hey, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ, and you can quote all the right scriptures, and you can say all the right things, and it's pretty and polished, and you hang it up over there. You know, you got your little piece, and it's like, oh, well, this is who I am in Christ. It's all standing there. You know, in the middle school that I went to, our mascot was the Raiders. And so we had these 
full-on armored suits in cases that we can never touch in the school. A couple of them. I always wanted to crawl in the case and get in it because I just thought it was cool. What good is armor if you don't use it? It's not meant to just stand back at a distance and be like, man, that sure is pretty. That sure... I, I mean, I'm not going to get to heaven and he's going to say, can you show me your armor? God, I have polished this thing and it's beautiful. What he's going to want to see is some scrapes and some dents and some dings and... But you're here. So we have to do something with all of these things that we're talking about. This isn't just theory. This is actual practice. So how do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? What does that look like in real terms? We have to have an attitude and we have to put on a mindset that keeps us confident in our walk with the Lord from the deepest place of our heart. Not in our mind, in our heart. Your mind may tell you, God's not pleased with you, but your heart says, but he loves me. He affectionately cares for me. Your mind may tell you, you've had a terrible day, but your heart says, no, but I'm still right with God. My day does not determine his pleasure with me. The Bible says that God created all of us, Ephesians 2.10, for what purpose? For his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. That's why we were created. So we have to have this mindset, this understanding, this attitude. See, righteousness gives us our confidence, but it's not from the head and it's not just from our thoughts. It comes out of our heart. It's a core issue. Remember I told you the breastplate did what? It covered the most vital organs. The breastplate of righteousness, having an understanding of who God has created you and called you to be. It's not based off of you and it's not based off of me. It is based off of Christ. It is based off of what He has accomplished for us. He what became, or I'm sorry, He put aside His righteousness to what? To step into our place and be unrighteous so that we could become the righteousness of God. He took on our role so that we can now take on His role. That's a heart issue. But it can't just be like in your head, well, I know that verse. It's got to be a core understanding. This is who I am. This has nothing to do with the power to walk out salvation. This has an understanding of who I am in Christ. I am declared righteous. God sees me through the sacrifice of Christ, and He calls me right with Him. Not because I deserved it, but because Christ laid down his life. So it will give us confidence. Why does this matter? Because we have an enemy in one of the tactics. Remember when I said earlier, is it he's going to come down a road. He's going to pick a path. He's going to go through your mind. He's going to go through your thoughts. And why? Because if he can get into your mind, he knows he will get into your heart. If he can get you to think on something long enough, you're no good and you know it. You've got nothing to offer anybody. Why would anybody listen to you? They know your past. They know all these things. Yeah, but devil, that old man died. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. It's Christ living in me. But the enemy will come. And here's the other side of this. Not only does the enemy come to accuse because he is a slanderer. If he can't get us to 
back off of what we see and what the Bible says as far as God's view about us, he'll flip it and he'll try to start accusing God to us. Did God really say? Did God really mean? Surely there's an exception and you're it. And he will begin to accuse the Lord to us. Why? Trying to get us off of the things that we see that God has given us through Scripture. He does this to create confusion and doubt. It's a weapon that he uses against us. He tries to get us convinced that God is not pleased with us. Somehow that we've let God down. You ever had that thought? The day was rough. and Man, God, I'm sorry. I really let you down. Let me just ask you a question. Were you ever holding him up to begin with? I mean, just, just a thought. I let you down. I wasn't supporting him to begin with. He was supporting me. I mean, here's another thought. You have a really bad day. You're like, man, today was rough. How bad would it have been if God was not holding you up? Instead of falling, it might have been destruction. <laughs> Instead of falling or, or slipping or whatever it may be. I mean, the Bible says he upholds us. We read that earlier in Psalms. He upholds us in his hand. That's that standing. That's that place where God has put us. See, what he does, he creates confusion about where we stand with God. He puts that doubt in us. But righteousness, that, that, that breastplate of righteousness will keep us focused. It's not based off of what I do. I'm not self-righteous here. I'm not trying to be righteous by what I do. The Bible says I am righteous because of who he calls me to be. That I receive righteousness as a gift by faith. It's not something I earn. It's a gift that I receive now by faith. Well, how does faith work? Faith is believing in what I cannot see and what I cannot feel, what I cannot sense. God, I don't feel righteous, but I believe that you are more real than my feelings. You are more real than my thoughts, and you say that I am righteous before you. So you receive the gift of righteousness by faith. That's how it works. See, I think many times, and this is just kind of what I would consider like self-talk. When the enemy comes and he's trying to whisper lies, you ought to have the, the questions kind of laid up. And this is what I believe is some practical sides of the, the breastplate of righteousness. When he comes to accuse, just ask yourself the question, does God love me? Yeah, I believe God loves me. Did he send Christ to die for me? Yeah, he did. Has he saved me? Yeah. Do I believe that God can't lie? No, I don't believe God can lie. I think, I think he's honest. I think he's true. Okay, well, did God call you righteous or not? Because if yes is true to all the rest of those, and if God can't lie, he says if you receive Christ, you've become the righteousness of God in him. It's not based off of us. It's not self-righteousness. It's not works. It's not all these trying... No, but it is an understanding of what's been done for me. It's a gift. It's a free gift. See, righteousness has to do primarily with where we stand with God, but salvation actually has to do 
with the power to become who God's created us to be. There's a difference. Righteousness is where I am. It's my position. I'm a son of God. That's my position. But if that's not settled in me, if that's not settled in you, that you're a son of God or a daughter of God, and God is well pleased with you, God is not mad at you. God is not angry with you. He sent Jesus to satisfy His anger and to lay the punishment that was due us on Him so that what? He no longer is angry towards us. That's why we have to receive righteousness. It's a gift. We have to receive it. But that gives us our understanding of our position with God. That's what gives us that place and that, and that, that really the, the confidence that I'm right with the Lord. And it's received by faith. The enemy wants us to walk in condemnation and yet we're to walk in righteousness. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We'll never be perfect. None of us. I love you all, but none of you are perfect, including myself. None of you will ever be perfect. But that's why we recognize our need for God. But just because I fall short doesn't mean that I'm not righteous. It just means God's still working. And I want to be aware of my need for God. I never want to get to the place where I'm like, I, 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 I have done these things. I've done this and I've not done that and I don't do this. And I don't hang out with those people who do this and... I mean, think about Jesus. All right, let me ask you a question. Was Jesus righteous? Was Jesus perfect? Yes. Did Jesus only hang out with church folk? No. His reputation is what? He hangs out with drunks, with sinners, with prostitutes. He's going to eat with tax collectors. But yet he was righteous. Which tells, you know, because I remember, and I understand there are principles here. You know, it used to be a saying that my parents used to tell me, if you hang out with dogs, you'll get fleas. They used to tell me that. You know, watch your friends. And I think that's important, especially in your formative years. But I'm I'm not a teenage kid anymore who's easily influenced either. I mean, Paul said, hey, at one time I was a child or I was childish. But now I'm a man. For some of us, it's time to realize where God has brought you to and realizing that you will not be tainted by somebody else's sin. But you can't save sinners without getting around some. You can't help lead them to Jesus. But it's having an understanding. Look, my righteousness is not based off of what I do or who I'm around. Jesus understood this and modeled it perfectly for us. That's the, that's the beauty of this for us. Because he had an understanding of who he was. I mean, when he got baptized in the River Jordan, what did God say? This is my son. The first recorded words of God to Jesus were, was that of identity. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. That was the first recorded words that we have of God speaking to Jesus. It established who He was. Righteousness establishes who we are. It protects. When all other may fail, righteousness will protect us.